I'm Michelle Thaller, and this is Orbital Path, a show about the cosmos and our place in it. Before we get started on this episode, I wanted to let you know about an exciting new podcast I think you might like. It's called Airspace, from the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum, and it's the newest addition to the PRX universe. And the first episode is actually something I'm kind of familiar with. It explores how scientists that work with our rovers on Mars actually have to adapt to living on Mars time. If you want to be ready when the sun rises on Mars every morning, well, the Martian day is actually about 45 minutes longer than the Earth day. So that means you come into work about 45 minutes later each day, and you work your way around the clock. And I happen to know that there are entire families at NASA where the whole family together will get on Mars time, say during summer vacation, so they actually get a chance to spend some time together. I'm also looking forward to a future episode that the airspace crew is working on right now. It's about space food and how it's changed over the years and hopefully got better. I have a lot of friends who are astronauts, and they tell me that one of the challenges is actually eating enough, when for one thing, the food isn't all that great, and the other thing is that your body is changing. It almost feels like you have the flu because fluids pool in your head. I had one friend who was an astronaut that, that just poured Tabasco sauce on everything just so he could taste something. He was having a lot of trouble tasting anything up in space. So NASA's gotten better at actually creating foods that are more appealing and taste better to astronauts in the conditions they're under in space. So check out the new Airspace podcast from the National Air and Space Museum of the Smithsonian and PRX. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. For this episode of Orbital Path, we're going back in time to a program we did about a year ago. I think it may have even greater resonance today. It's a story of truly remarkable international cooperation both scientific and political. It was an effort that saved the planet from a real threat as serious as any we've ever invented in science fiction. It's called How the World Came Together to Avoid Ozone Disaster. This year, the year 2017, marks the anniversary of one of the most important treaties in human history. And my guess it's one that you never heard about. Seriously, have you ever heard of the Montreal Protocol? It was done in 1987, and it wasn't a treaty that stopped a war or dealt with nuclear weapons. Instead, it was a treaty that was actually driven by science. And the thing that's kind of amazing to me is that scientists didn't go looking for this problem. This started as what we call blue sky research, research for curiosity's own sake. And all around the planet, scientists from many different nations realized they were seeing something very frightening. So this particular story starts out with a simple little molecule, ozone actually a whole bunch of those molecules, the ozone layer. People have been measuring ozone worldwide for many years, really, oh, systematically since about the 20s in Switzerland is a place that, that has a record that goes way back to there. The interest was in the idea that it might be helpful for weather forecasting. At that point, people were really exploring our geophysical world and I think it's fair to say we, society, began to measure it just because it was there. So it was kind of like mountain climbing. Uh, my name is Susan Solomon. I'm the uh, Lee and Geraldine Martin Professor of Environmental Studies at MIT. 
Susan Solomon is an atmospheric chemist, and back in the 1980s, she was working as a research scientist at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, also known as NOAA. I was doing simulations of how the ozone layer behaves right at the time that the British Antarctic Survey discovered the Antarctic ozone hole, and it was, you know, it was quite a showstopper, and, and we, were, we were somewhat concerned about that. I mean, that's why we thought that in 100 years, you know, there might be a 5% depletion. What happened in 85 was the British said, hey, it's not 5% in 100 years, it's 50% now. Instead of slowly depleting over decades, there seemed to be a big hole developing in the ozone layer. And that hole was getting bigger, fast. But only in Antarctica. We weren't seeing changes like that anywhere else in the world, and there was never a suggestion that Antarctica would be special. Everyone in the field was absolutely stunned by that discovery. It wasn't near any large city or area of pollution. It was actually over somewhere very pristine. And here's the whole thing about science, just for curiosity's sake. We really didn't understand how the ozone layer worked. We didn't understand why there'd be a hole or why it would be depleting or anything like that. Now, ozone isn't all that uncommon. I mean, you find trace amounts of it in the atmospheres of Mars or Venus. But Earth has a very, very thick layer of ozone. And that's probably related to the presence of oxygen and maybe even life. It also is an incredible protector for life and surely has influenced the entire evolutionary history of life on Earth. So before we learn more about the fate of life on our planet, I wanted to talk more about what the ozone layer is and how it works. So I visited with NASA senior atmosphere chemist Ann Douglas at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. And I actually asked Ann to start by imagining you were explaining this to a grade school student. All right, so you have an oxygen molecule, and you can draw that with two circles and happy faces. The oxygen molecules are very happy. They're very stable. And if you can remember from your high school chemistry class, an oxygen molecule is made up of two atoms of oxygen, O2, and they get broken apart by ultraviolet radiation from the sun. And then they are sad because oxygen atoms are not happy. They're unstable. They need to find a partner. And then those atoms attach onto other oxygen molecules. So now you have three atoms of oxygen all bound together, and that's an ozone molecule. And they're pretty happy when they're in ozone. Now, up there in the stratosphere, when UV light hits an ozone molecule, it can break it apart again. And they become unhappy. So all of a sudden now you're back to having a single oxygen atom and an oxygen molecule. And they get happy again. So there's a process that's in balance. With ozone being broken apart by UV radiation. Unhappy. And then reforming. Pretty happy. You absorb ultraviolet light and you protect the surface of the Earth. Very happy. And so that's how they stop that nasty ultraviolet radiation from reaching the surface. So back to Dr. Solomon, our NOAA researcher. When she learned about the giant hole in the ozone layer over Antarctica, she decided she had to figure out what was behind it. So in 1986, she led a team to Antarctica to gather data on the ozone hole in person. I went at the end of the winter, so it was pretty dark. Uh, when I got off the airplane, the temperature was about minus 40, and the air kind of hits your face like a slap at those kind of temperatures. You realize pretty quickly that uh, you have to be careful how you breathe because 
if you breathe through your nose, you know, you'll you'll end up with um, you know icicles in your nostrils, and it's actually fairly unpleasant, although it's an amazing experience. So the race was on to gather as much data as they possibly could about the ozone hole in Antarctica. They went to Antarctica. They had aircraft that were doing measurements. They even used balloons. It's much colder in Antarctica than it is in the Arctic, and it's so cold that clouds can actually form in the Antarctic stratosphere. Those clouds change the chemistry in a in a in a simple and very fundamental way. They provide a surface on which chemical processes can happen that just simply don't happen in the gas phase. They're called polar stratospheric clouds, and they're much higher altitude than clouds pretty much anywhere else on Earth. And that has to do because of the condensation of ice crystals way up in the atmosphere. So there was some kind of a platform there. The clouds were actually enabling chemicals to get up into the ozone layer and start affecting it. These clouds provided Solomon with a key clue that something was indeed messing with the ozone layer. But she was stumped on exactly what? Um, immediately, all kinds of ideas sprang up. Um, maybe it's just a meteorological change. Maybe it's uh, solar proton events. So the sun has uh, storms, I guess it's fair to say, just like we have here on Earth. And sometimes protons get spewed out. Maybe they could be responsible. And then the third idea was, uh, well, maybe it's uh, somehow related to chlorofluorocarbons and they're acting much more intensively than we thought. And that was uh, something that I got very interested in. After testing the ozone layer in many different ways, Solomon came to a pretty amazing conclusion. It was human-made chemicals that were destroying the ozone layer. The culprit was something called chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs for short. And these were really wonder chemicals. Chemical companies loved them because they were easy to make, they were safe, they didn't really react with anything, they were inflammable. And so we started using them in refrigeration systems, in hairspray bottles. They were very, very useful things. And the whole point here is that they don't react with anything, they don't hurt anything. So they seem very safe. But there was a problem because nobody really thought about what would happen if CFCs could get to a very high altitude. At very high altitudes where you aren't shielded from the sun's radiation so much, they could start reacting with UV light. And that's where the problems really began. So the important thing about being in the upper atmosphere is that CFCs get smashed apart by ultraviolet radiation. And they release a chlorine atom. And the incredible thing is that the chlorine atoms can really intensely bond with oxygen atoms up there. So you remember we talked about this balance, that ozone becomes oxygen molecules, there's UV radiation that's absorbed in the process. All of a sudden now you introduce these chlorine atoms that take oxygen atoms out of the whole equation. And this balance is being interrupted. Even though they're emitted in the northern hemisphere, they get mixed through the whole planet much faster than they get destroyed because they have no loss process in the lower atmosphere. Um, but they can rise up into the stratosphere where they finally encounter high energy ultraviolet light from the sun and they break down and make chlorine atoms. The chlorine atoms can go on to deplete ozone. With the ozone layer quickly disappearing over Antarctica, scientists were scrambling to figure out why this was happening. And importantly, how do we stop it? Because the real world implications of losing the ozone layer are a lot more significant than most people realize. Yes, there would be nearly instant sunburns and there'd be a lot of uptick in skin cancer. That would have been an immediate problem. But really, cancer would likely have been the least of our worries. 
Back to NASA's atmospheric chemist, Ann Douglas. The adaptation that would be required to live in a world without ozone is, it, it's even hard to fathom. I mean, there certainly would be no more beach vacations or anything of the type, but even, you know, if you lost more than half the ozone layer, you would be like getting sunburn within minutes of being outdoors. But the damage to the ecosystem is, is almost incalculable. I mean, like, it's almost silly to think what would have happened to the people because I'm not sure what we would have had to eat or how we could have possibly lived with the ozone gone everywhere. It's one of the important things that has let life on Earth evolve. Scientists exposed many crops to the amount of UV radiation that they would be getting if the ozone layer had really broken down. And a lot of those plants died. That meant that our base of agriculture, the base of the food chain, would have been disrupted, at least temporarily. It would have been very difficult to have livestock outside. And when you think about the way humans act, there were fewer resources, there'd be conflicts. This very well could have set off wars. And much to their credit, world leaders got worried when they learned what would happen if the ozone hole continued to grow. And they acted fast. It is an international problem, and it demands, I believe, a viable international solution. I believe very strongly, Mr. Chairman, that the Montreal Protocol should be approved by the Senate as quickly as possible. Plenamente el acuerdo de Montreal para proteger la capa de ozono. It is surely incumbent upon our governments to accelerate the phase-out of CFCs by all reasonable means available to them. Within two years, we had the Montreal Protocol, which was step one to reducing the use of CFCs. Basically, a bunch of countries agreed that they had to scale back the use of a whole class of chemicals. I would say one of the important pieces with it was that the chemical manufacturers were playing a role, funding scientific research and listening, and at the same time preparing substitute compounds that they could use if these compounds were going to be restricted. So the first agreement, the Montreal Protocol, did not ban chlorofluorocarbon production. It limited it. And then as scientific information accrued, the protocol was strengthened repeatedly. The more we learned, the more chemicals were banned. And eventually, the ozone hole stopped getting bigger. We knew that we were really doing the right thing. It's not that the ozone hole has gone away. It's still there. But the important thing is things are starting to get better. just 30 years after avoiding a man-made disaster, which would have really changed the way the entire planet operates, we're finding ourselves facing something kind of similar. Human-driven climate change is really beginning to affect our planet. And once again, scientists are warning politicians that this is true and trying to get the public to actually notice this and pay attention. But this time, we know it's a lot more complicated. What do you think are the main differences between solving a problem like the ozone depletion and, I mean, the same sort of thing, the industry involvement, climate change, should be something similar, but yet that doesn't seem to have really quite started. What's going on between those two problems? Well, I think the big difference is that the chemical industry has lots of other jobs. They do many, many things, and they were the same people who created the compounds to begin with, were the ones who were creating the replacement compounds. When you look at the energy people, you know, and the people who are the coal and oil, their economic impacts locally, you know, and for them can be 
far more devastating. The data is there, but even for scientists, knowing what to do with the facts can be confusing. But there is always hope for the future. I have, I have a big family. I have a lot of grandchildren. Four of them are quadruplets. And they live, they live in Louisiana. And I feel like they're on the front line for climate change. And as a scientist, I want to tell everyone that I know in Louisiana what's going on, why it matters, and how their lives need to change in terms of the petroleum industry. You know, but at the same time, when I say those things, I feel like there's an extent to which you just feel discredited when you start because it's like the political climate. It's just very, very hard for a scientist or anyone to say anything without, you know, like falling off the edge. It's funny, so many people think that scientists are all about the data, that we're really not very uh, emotional people, maybe we're not really humans at all. But this story for me is all about emotion, and part of it is really wonderful. The idea that the entire planet came together 30 years ago. And now we find ourselves facing a future where we're going to have to come together again. And it is always painful and frustrating for scientists when people think that there is a political agenda here. We started this being curious, and we realized something was going on that was cause for major concern. And it's very frustrating for me, personally, me, when we're accused of having political agendas, when all we wanted to do was study what was going on, and then when, once we found out what was going on, to issue a very honest warning that something has to change. I'm less confident that we are gonna take the measures that we need to take for climate change, although I think that we can. And some groups are gonna make it, they make you feel like if you make a mistake on what you've recycled, you have ruined the earth. That is not true. Everyone needs to do their best, of course, but the truth is that if, if we don't take action as a nation, at the infrastructure level, it won't matter what the individuals do. It isn't something that we can solve by convincing all the people in the United States that they should recycle and lower their thermostat. That wouldn't be enough. We need infrastructure adaptation. I don't know how that's going to turn out. I'm often discouraged, um, but I am getting solar panels, so there you go. enjoying Orbital Path, then check out the Everyday Einstein podcast produced by our friends at Quick and Dirty Tips. Join astrophysicist Dr. Sabrina Steerwalt as she explores the science behind everyday life and mysteries. How old is the universe? Why do smells trigger memories? Just how dangerous, exactly, is space junk? The largest threat to astronauts and working satellites is actually the stuff that's too small to track. Even something as small as a fleck of paint can cause major damage when traveling at speeds of 17,000 miles per hour. Subscribe and listen to Everyday Einstein on iTunes, Stitcher, or quickanddirtytips.com. This mission to the stars has been commanded by Justin O'Neill. Andrea Mustaine edits. John Barth and Genevieve Sponsler, co-pilot from the PRX Mothership. We are supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. 
More information at sloan.org. If you like this episode and want to hear more, check us out at orbital.prx.org or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And I'm Dr. Michelle Fowler, a little bit of dead stardust, signing off for now.